This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Thank you very much for your kind welcome and your good words. Um, This year I have been celebrating the Woman Warrior's 30th birthday. And, um, and as I think about her and uh, the 30 years of, of writing and producing all these books, um, one question that, um, that I um, work with is, uh, uh, why write? I mean, why do this at all? Uh, why is, is writing... Um, so important to me that I have devoted all my 66 years of life to it. And um, one answer that comes to mind is that, um, that I write because I need to communicate and I need to make connections um, with all of the people that uh, I meet, and and I need to make connections with all the people that I don't meet. I need to um, I need to communicate with people, and um, and then and so gather a uh, a community around me, gather friends and and family and loved ones um, to um, to to to. Uh, be able to exchange thoughts and feelings. Um, so I, um, as I look over this this career of writing all these books, with always that um, um, that that desire to um, to reach out and to be able to. Exchange thoughts and feelings with others. I uh, look over my work, and I see that um, from from my earliest beginnings as a baby, uh, that was my goal. And so I'm going to read you a uh, the first poem that I ever composed, and. Uh, it's not the first one I ever wrote because I couldn't write yet. I, I think I was about two or three years old, and um, and then you will hear this in in my first language. Uh, and so this is the way that poetry came to me at the beginning. My mother used to hold me by the waist and boosted me out the upstairs front window. Sing to your grandfathers, she said. Tease them. My mother's hands at my waist squeezed poems out of me. Samgunga, Segunga, Nehoi Naya, Mahai, Cup Cup, Segyo, Yao Segyo, Nehoi Naya. Here's the translation of my very minor Chinese dialect. Hey, third grandfather. Hey, fourth grandfather. Where are you going? 
Horseshoes clippity-clopping, four feet, then four feet. Where are you going? My two grandfathers sat atop the stagecoach drawn by two black horses and laughed and clapped their hands. Ah, they said, ah. So um, from from earliest memory, the... um, I was encouraged by my grandfathers, by my mother, that, uh, that it was very, um, that, that I can um, entertain other people. I could uh, send my grandfathers uh, my love, and I could have them love me back and laugh at my jokes and my poems. And uh, so this, this, um, th- this power was... Um, uh, came to me very young, and I knew how to appreciate it very young. Um, the um, okay, now I'm going to just skip ahead for maybe let's see, may eight years, eight or nine years, and uh, I'm going to read to you a section from the Woman Warrior when I'm about uh, twelve years old, and. Uh, by this time, this uh, desire to reach out to other people and to communicate, um, it's very frustrated, and I'm, I'm feeling very negative now. Um, it, was very, it was shocking to me and traumatic to start going to school and find out that I couldn't communicate with anybody because I spoke a completely different language from everybody else. And uh, so and that um, unhappiness lasted for a long time. And, and I think this is why I, um, I was a bully when I was uh, in the sixth grade. And, and the and the person I picked on was um, a uh, Chinese-American girl who, when I think about it now, she was very much like me. She was too feminine. She was too soft. And, but the worst thing about her was that she could not speak. And uh, she did not have the power to communicate. And so um, I'm going to read you this little scene where I trap her in the bathroom and I pull her hair and I pinch her cheeks and I made her cry and, uh, and I wanted to make her uh, speak. And uh, I'm going to, and I, I bully her for a, a long time. So I'm going to get into the middle of the scene where I... <laughs> where I am able to, um, you know, actually, I'm trying to tell her that I'm doing this for her own good. Because <laughs> you, know? you have to, you better talk, or I'm going to keep torturing you. Yeah, so this is what I'm doing. I'm torturing her. Why won't you talk? I started to cry. What if I couldn't stop crying and everyone would want to know what happened? Now look what you've done, I said. 
You're going to pay for this. I want to know why. And you're going to tell me why. You don't see I'm trying to help you out, do you? Do you want to be like this, dumb? Do you know what dumb means your whole life? Don't you ever want to be a cheerleader or a pom-pom girl? What are you going to do for a living? Yeah, you're going to have to work because you can't be a housewife. Somebody has to marry you before you can be a housewife. And you, you are a plant. Do you know that? That's all you are if you don't talk. If you don't talk, you can't have a personality. You'll have no personality and no hair. You've got to let people know you have a personality and a brain. You think somebody is going to take care of you all your stupid life? You think you always have your big sister? You think somebody's going to marry you? Is that it? Well, you're not the type that gets dates, <laughs> let alone gets married. Nobody's going to notice you, and you have to talk for interviews, speak right up in front of the boss. Don't you know that? You're so dumb. Why do I waste my time on you? Sniffling and snorting, I couldn't stop crying and talking at the same time. I kept wiping my nose on my arm, my sweater lost somewhere probably not worn because my mother said to wear a sweater. It seemed as if I had spent my life in that basement doing the worst thing I had yet done to another person. I'm doing this for your own good, I said. Don't you dare tell anyone I've been bad to you. Talk. Please talk. So I, um, I guess now we are all sophisticated readers, so I guess you can see that, uh, of course, at the time I thought that I was saying this to another person, but of course I'm giving directions to myself, and uh, I'm saying to myself, I better uh, learn to, uh, to speak up, to communicate, and... Uh, and to be able to find the right words and be a speaker and a, and a writer. I had um, two great-great-grandfathers who um, left China, and they came to the Sandalwood Islands, which is Hawaii. And uh, in Hawaii, they worked in the cane fields, and um, it's the strangest coincidence or irony, but um, one of the rules when you're working in the cane fields is that you're not supposed to talk. And um, 
you know, I, I wonder what that was all about. Um, Toni Morrison, in her book Beloved, she writes about uh, people, uh, slaves working cane fields, and they were they also had that same rule that you are not allowed to talk. And um, in in Beloved, they put a bit in their mouths, so. Um, uh, they were saying so that you couldn't eat the cane, but it was also so that they couldn't talk. And so I wonder about this, you know. Um, that's, that's a terrible torture because when one is working and farming, uh, one of the joys of being a farmer is uh, you, you have work songs. You know, you could sing while you work. But if you are told that you cannot talk, then um, you can't sing or you can't talk story with your fellow workers. Uh, so you can pass the day, you know. You could tell jokes. You could tell stories to pass the time as you're working. But um, there was this rule that you could not talk. And I wonder whether it's so that people could not um, organize or so that they they could not plan a, a revolution or or rebel against working conditions, and so I have a um, a scene in China Men that I want to read to you, and um, and this is a story. It's a story about a story. Uh, I love doing that. I like finding a story and then uh, finding the roots of that story. Where did this story come from? Who first told it? And what are the uses for this story? Um, I, I'm going to first tell you an um, ancient Chinese myth fairy tale. And then these uh, sugarcane workers using the um, story for their own purposes. And, um, and what they learn from the story is that um, you can dig a hole into the earth and you can tell the earth uh, your your stories, your, your, uh, your grievances, your sadness, your loneliness. Um, you can make an ear into the earth, and uh, you can talk all the way to China, and you can communicate with the um, grandmothers and all the people there that are left behind. And... Um, uh, well, let me just start this one. That evening, great-grandfather talked story to the silenced men who had heard it already in the long-ago place where there had been mothers and children. Old uncles and young uncles, I have an appropriate story to tell. It cannot be left unsaid. He recalled a land arranged in layers like clouds or stages where animals, common men and women, kings and gods held adventures. <clears throat> Baka, 
Suka, a long time ago in China, there lived a king who would have given his kingdom for a son. Powerful but childless, sonless, yearning to be a father, he bought ponies of various sizes for his someday son to ride as he grew. He would trot behind his father on tours of the kingdom. Together they would shoot arrows, snare rabbits, and catch fish. Longing to hold his own son to his chest, he felt envious looking at ordinary fathers. He read tea leaves and oil wicks looking for a son. But at last, when his wish was granted and his own only boy was born, the queen and the midwives hesitated to show him the new prince. Is it a boy, he asked. It is a boy, isn't it? He pushed aside the blanket and saw that on either side of the bald head, the prince had little pointed furry ears like a kitten's. Oh, no, said the king. Cat ears. The prince has cat ears. Keep our secret. Don't tell the people. So the years went by. The prince grew into noble perfection, except for the kitty ears. (laughs) The queen combed his long hair over them. Only in appearance were the ears strange. The prince heard as clearly as anyone else. The subjects exclaimed over his handsomeness. The king never mentioned the cat ears. And so the secret grew large inside his chest and mouth. One day, when the boy was almost grown, the king could not hold the secret inside himself any more. He walked alone in a winter field where he scooped out a hole. He shouted into it, The king's son has cat ears. The king's son has cat ears. He shouted until he was empty of his secret. And satisfied, relieved, he pushed the dirt back into the hole and stamped it down. In the spring, grass grew in that field. And when the wind blew through it, the people heard words. The sound swelled through the summer enunciated until the people knew for sure what the tall grass and the wind said louder and louder. The king's son has cat ears. The king's son has cat ears. It grew into a song. The king's son has cat ears. The news spread throughout the land. It made the people laugh to hear it. The listening men thought how they would love their baby boy, even if he had cat ears. He'd be even cuter with cat ears. They would brag as they handed out red eggs to the other unfamilied men who would come to visit the baby. See? The fathers would say, cat ears. Bet you've never seen anything like them. Eh, father, the other Chinamen would say enviously. A father are you. 
They'd make much of giving the baby red money. The next day, this is the next day after hearing the story, the men plowed, working purposefully, but they dug a circle instead of straight furrows. They dug a wide hole. They threw down their tools and flopped on the ground with their faces over the edge of the hole and their legs like wheel spokes. Hello down there in China, they shouted. Hello, mother. Hello, my heart and my liver. I miss you. What are you doing right now? Happy birthday. Happy birthday for last year, too. I've been working hard for you, and I hate it. Sometimes I forget my family and go to clubs. I drink all night. I lost all the money again. I've become an opium addict. I don't even look Chinese anymore. I'm sorry. I ate it all by myself. And I fell to my knees at the sight of 20 waterfalls. I saw only one sandalwood tree. They said any kind of thing. Blonde demoness, Polynesian demoness. I'm coming home by and by. I'm not coming home. I'm staying here in the Sandalwood Mountains. I want to be home, Bak Gung said. I'm bringing her home, said Bak Suk Gung. They had dug an ear into the world and were telling the earth their secrets. I want home, Bak Gung yelled, pressed against the soil and smelling the earth. I want my home, the men yelled together. I want home, 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 home. Talked out, they buried words, planted them like cats covering shit, they laughed. That wasn't a custom, said Bakung. We made it up. We can make up customs because we're the founding ancestors of this place. They made such a noise that the demons could have come charging upon them and the hole filled with the sounds of battle. But the demons hid. The China men so riled up. Who knows what they were up to? From the day of the shout party, Bak Gung talked and sang at his work and did not get sent to the punishment fields. In cutting season, the demons no longer accompanied the knife-wielding China men into deep cane. Soon the new green roots, soon the new green shoots would rise, and when in two years the cane grew gold tassels, what stories the wind would tell. I, um, when I was in Hawaii trying to find the stories of my ancestors, one of the things I did was walk in the cane fields and I did listen to the wind and I felt my, my feet on the red earth and, uh, 
and I concentrated on hearing their voices, and I did find these stories. Um, I, it's a it's a wonderful coincidence that um, this a story about the 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 uh, king whose son has cat ears. You know, it's a story by Ovid also. And uh, it's almost just like this. And so here are the Chinese with this story, and here are the Romans with the very same story. And so it it makes me feel like um, uh, we people are connected to other people on the other side of the world. And, uh, and is this in our human um, universal consciousness? Or is it that we um, tell our stories and, and we hear stories and we pass them on and pass them on and it connects all of us? And, um, and here are the people yelling into the earth and planting not only sugarcane, but they're planting stories and um, and these are no longer Chinese stories these are these are American stories because these stories are planted in American soil um, the the next book I wrote is uh, Tripmaster Monkey his fake book and um, and I, after after two books in which I was writing nonfiction and truth as closely as I could, I had such a desire to just make things up, and so I wrote fiction and and got this freedom of fiction to make up anything I wanted, and um, I found out that in fiction the discipline is even more strict. Um, because in order to have verisimilitude, you have to have, you know, just the right car, and the clothes have to be just right. You have to get the prices right, the politics of the time, the history. It has to be perfect, or uh, or nobody will believe your fiction. Um, the um, so in uh, Tripmaster Monkey, I um, again. Uh, Worked on this, this um, wanting to communicate, and um, and when good communication takes place among many people, we build a the beautiful community. That's Martin Luther King's words: the beautiful community. And um, and, and Tripmaster Monkey, Walt Whitman, not Walt Whitman, Whitman Singh, who's named after Walt Whitman. He tried to build the beautiful community uh, through theater and uh, through um, uh, storytelling on the stage. And, uh, and theater would be uh, like a ritual of bringing a community together. Um, <clears throat> Whitman, uh, I was so interested in Whitman, and, uh, and he did so many things that it that I finished Tripmaster Monkey, and then he appeared again in the next book, um, the uh, fifth book of peace. And in the fifth book of peace, he arrives in Hawaii. And uh, he comes there 
just in time to um, be at um, uh, be there during the Vietnam War, and uh, and 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 uh, Hawaii, it was like um, a center for mobilizing this war. I mean, all the ships and all the supplies, all the soldiers come there. They stop in Hawaii for a while and then on to Vietnam. And uh, so here it is. It's 1969, and it's just at the height of the war, the Tet Offensive. All of that was happening. And... um, and some of the soldiers that um, were in Hawaii, they, they, some of them had, um, they, they were on R&R, you know, uh, rest and re- recreation. R&R coming back from uh, Vietnam, and they were supposed to have a little rest and recreation in Hawaii before being shipped back uh, to uh, Vietnam, and then there were others coming from the mainland and being shipped, and a whole bunch of them decided they're not going to go. They're not going to go back to Vietnam, and they're not going to go on to Vietnam, and um, and they started a sanctuary at the Church of the Crossroads. Um, okay, all of this is real life, and but I. Um, and in real life, I was at the sanctuary. My husband was at the sanctuary. Actually, our son was going to school at, at the Church of the Crossroads in this sanctuary. And, um, but in my fiction, I have Whitman um, sing, and he goes to this sanctuary. Um, he's evading the draft, too. Uh, but he's there at the sanctuary supporting all these AWOL GIs. And I'm just going to read to you a description of the sanctuary because all these people coming together, um, it was such a surprise because um, it wasn't all negative protest. Um, To everyone's surprise, they built a beautiful community. The layout of the church, oh, the layout of the church was a rectangle of low one-story buildings with tile roofs in a Mediterranean Japanese style. Diamond Head side was the chapel. Mauka side was the multi-purpose hall, classrooms, and the GI coffee house. The University Avenue side had more classrooms and offices, and Mackay side was the parking lot for the varsity and the bank. The center was a grass-covered courtyard, a plaza surrounded by rows of Chinese red columns, red for luck and blessing. Anywhere in the courtyard, everyone could see everyone else and the dogs on the bright green grass. The palm trees in the corners and along the parking lot nodded their big heads down. They were curious about human activities. The community was in a box, a frame, open to the sky and sun. It seemed that God looked in. God could see one and all and was interested in what each was doing, 
napping, eating, giving or getting a massage, tossing a ball, reading, writing, talking with new friends. Everyone in sanctuary felt it. Everything he or she does is important. Sanctuary was a separate world, yet open to the street and city. Anyone could walk into sanctuary from any angle or side, go right in between the red columns. No one was shut out. The authorities could walk onto the church grounds too, bust up sanctuary, arrest everybody, take the AWOLs away, close it down. But the MPs, HASP, man, HASP is Hawaiian... Our, let's see, Hawaiian Armed Services Police, Hawaiian Armed Services Police. Uh, the FBI and the cops stayed in the parking lot, standing about, sitting in their cars and on their motorcycles. The only thing stopping them was the idea of sanctuary. They all respected where the invisible borders were and stayed on their side of them. Thus they consented that there is such a thing as sanctuary. The place here is sacred, Kapu. The chaplain from Schofield patrolled Sanctuary's University Avenue boundary. He yelled into his electronic bullhorn and threatened the GIs to come out or else. He said to give themselves up as if they were criminals. You boys are breaking the law. You're going to the stockade. You're damned to hell. He was a black man, and his bullhorn amplified basso profundo voice preached damnation. Surrender and be saved. I'm telling you for your own sake, I'm responsible for you, for your soul and your career in the service. Get yourself out of here. He yelled at all his boys, did not single out any black. He did not know that Walter was black. He was so white looking. And Cy Johnston identified with and attached himself to blacks. His black sergeant had risked his own life to save size in Vietnam. All day and into the night, the chaplain nagged and worried, threatened and cursed. He harangued his boys like gangsters under siege. Give yourselves up or else you're damned. Come on out. Come on out. You boys are in big trouble. Surrender peaceably. The damn commie traitors are duping you. Don't be a dupe. Don't aid and comfort the enemy. Come out. Don't make the army come in after you. Damned from here to eternity. One day, his loud, hectoring voice blasted through the sanctuary with new information. It's not too late. You have a chance. Turn yourself in now. You are not a deserter. 
A deserter is AWOL 31 days. The law is 31 days. Then you are charged with desertion. Go three days AWOL. Go four days AWOL. Go five days. Go a week. Go two weeks AWOL. You can still be forgiven. Only come out now. Every day the chaplain roared the count. Is it worth it? 31 days AWOL, five years federal penitentiary. Come out now to clemency, to mercy. That he used a bullhorn shows how thick he imagined the sanctuary walls. Actually, the sanctuary lasted for about 32 days. And this is one of the longest sanctuaries in probably in human history. And, um, and then uh, the, there was the bust, and, uh, and the military came in and, uh, and just took the sanctuary apart. Um, I was working and thinking about a book of peace for a long time. And um, somewhere, probably from my mother or grandparents somewhere, I heard that there were three books of peace. And, uh, and they were in China, and they were lost. And, uh, probably lost in library fires and um, revolutions. You know, every time that uh, there's a new emperor, every time there's a new revolution, what they do is burn all the books, uh, kill the writers, kill the historians, um, burn 6,000 temples in Tibet. Um, and uh, so this, these books were probably lost in some of those fires uh, throughout, uh, what, the last 5,000 years of history. And uh, so I um, did go on a quest and uh, went many times to Asia uh, asking everywhere for uh, books of peace. And, um, and, and then at a certain point I gave up and realized they really are lost. Maybe they were never Maybe it's just a myth. They, maybe they never existed. Uh, they should be books about how to end war, how to um, build a peaceful community. And uh, while the, the art of war by, um, uh, by uh, Sun Tzu is extant and is being taught at um, uh, uh, military academies and in business schools, uh, the books of peace are gone. And so I thought it was up to me to um, to write one, and um, and I was doing very well, and it would be um, a, a, a book for our time. It would be uh, uh, from the point of view of an American, and I would take into consideration a modern war- warfare, and 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 I was I, I I wrote two years of this book, and then. Um, in 1991, uh, at the beginning of the year, was our first Gulf War. And at the end of the year, this 
California fire went through the Oakland Berkeley Hills and burned our neighborhood house and my book and uh, and lots of other artwork uh, lots of scholars were working in our neighborhood all of that lost and uh, so then um, I uh, then it was my task to think uh, how will I create again after all that destruction? And an idea came to me that I mustn't write alone anymore. I, uh, you know, I should take it as a sign. My little attic room. I had a little garret, in, and uh, it was just my size. Only I could fit in there. <laughs> Nobody else could could fit. And I had a room of my own. And, uh, and I worked alone. But it came to me, you know, why sh- it's, I shouldn't be building the beautiful community all my, by myself. I need a community. And so I um, gathered a community, a writing community around me. And the people that I invited to be in it were uh, war veterans, veterans of war. And their families of all wars come and write with me, and we'll see whether we could um, write our way from war to peace. Let's see whether we can do it. And um, so, for 15 years, we have been working, and um, and we just now, at the end of last year, gathered our stories, and we came out with this book. Um, Veterans of War, Veterans of Peace. And in it are 40 prose writers and 40 um, uh, uh, poets. And, um, you know, when I was teaching the veterans, um, what I, a story that I really wanted to hear from people would be a a story about human communication and how in when we communicate we can make make peace and um, and having uh, all these war veterans uh, in the group I knew that people would write adventure stories you know war stories lots of adventure and uh, lots of conflict lots of violence um, of course, we need to get that out. But I was hoping that people would would um, be inspired somewhere along the way that uh, maybe they lived a moment or they would imagine a time when people would communicate beautifully and, uh, and, and there make uh, peace. And uh, so I'm ha- very happy to tell you that uh, there are lots of stories like that. And so I'm just going to read you um, a, a scene. Um, this is by Robert Landman. And um, he was in the infantry in Vietnam in 1969, right at the, the just the, the most bloody part of the war. And... Um, he was, uh, in this scene, he is with people who have captured a, uh, a prisoner from uh, North Vietnam. And uh, 
and they're interrogating him. And they've just finished part of an interrogation. And in my mind, interrogation and torture are very close. And then they put the prisoner sort of to the side, and, um, and, and Robert decides that he would like to talk to him. As the South Vietnamese Army interpreter and I, Robert, over long months had become friends, I asked him if I could talk to the NVA soldier. Relieved, the interpreter perked up and said, Sure, what do you want to talk to him about? As we approached, the NVA soldier looked up and appeared very apprehensive. Through the interpreter, I asked him his name. The interpreter smiled when I replied with my name. Continuing in this triangulated conversation, I asked, where do you live? He said, Hanoi. I said, I live in San Francisco. How did you come to be here? He was drafted out of school into the army. I said, me too. How old are you? 19. I'm 19 too. Do you have a girlfriend or a wife? He said, yes. He pulled something from his shirt pocket, momentarily looked at it tenderly, then showed it to me. It was a black and white picture of his wife. He looked up and asked me if there was someone special in my life. Painfully, I looked down at the ground, stumbling over my words, trying to find a way to express that I really didn't, as I'd received a Dear John letter some weeks before. But the interpreter quickly interceded and said, yes, <laughs> and was nodding in amusement over how well the interview was going. The interpreter asked me for my wallet, which he opened to the colorful picture inside, one of an, an attractive woman and another of a happy family, pictures that come with a new wallet. <laughs> that for some reason I hadn't taken out yet. With a big grin, the interpreter pointed to the picture of the woman saying, she's number one. As the NVA soldier inflated some, smiled and nodded in agreement. I did not have the heart to tell them that she was not my number one. And I did not want to rob him of enjoying the moment and my seeming good fortune. After an awkward silence, I asked if he was hungry. I didn't need the interpreter to tell me that he was. I opened up a can of food and gave it to him. He ate some, then offered some back to me. I gestured no, that it was for him, and he ate the rest of the food. When he finished, he looked at me. I mean, he really looked at me deep into my eyes, perhaps into my soul. I looked back, trying to see in him what he might be seeing in me. It was a long moment, one of those rare moments outside of normal time and space where the ways of the world cease to apply. It was as if I was looking into a mirror and the reflection looking back was another face. It was the experience of really being seen 
And in that moment, I really saw him, not as a prisoner or even a soldier, but as who he really was, a human being caught up in a war that he and I would never have wanted to happen, did not want to be part of, and wanted to end as soon as possible without any more loss of life. In that moment, a silence came over that side of the mountain. In this moment, looking back over my life, I have learned there are many different kinds of silence. Remembering that moment in my life, it was the silence of peace, beyond all understanding, lasting only a moment, as unforeseen and quickly as it had come the moment began to evaporate. In the 30 years since uh, writing The Woman Warrior, I have uh, thought many times about um, uh, myself becoming a more and more peaceful person. And here I wrote this woman warrior story. And with all its violence and all its uh, wars, and and um, and so I've been thinking um, about the uh, the story of Famuklan, and um, and and I see that I made a lot of mistakes, and, and for one thing, I told it as a feminist story, like a feminist uh, war story. And, um, and, and I don't know, but now I can see uh, telling that story from a, another point of view. Uh, maybe that's not the main um, meaning of that story. Um, there's, there's other things that I uh, did um, wrong or unskillfully, too. The... Um, I forgot to say that Famuklan was a weaver, and, um, and so she was a general and a weaver, all in one. She's P- Penelope and Odysseus, all in one. And, um, but I had forgotten all about that weaving, and so I didn't tell how very feminine the yin she was. Um, and also... I wrote it in prose, whereas the um, chant, as it was done in China a thousand years ago, it's in poetic form. And the rhythm is the sound of the shuttle going back and forth across the loom. And so I have rewritten uh, the um, uh, the story of Famuklan. I've done it in poetic lines. I've uh, and I tell you that she's a weaver, and um, and actually, uh, uh, so this uh, chant, um, I am so impressed by my rewriting it that I put it in two books, and uh, and so now I have told the story of Famuklan in three different books, and uh, and I. I, that amazes me that, that we can actually tell the same story and it comes out different every time. Um, in the poem form, it starts with the sound of weaving 
and that's chick, chick, chick. And chick means to weave. And chick means to knit. And chick means to heal. And as I write at this time, I see that it's not just a war chant. It's a coming home from war chant. Chick, chick, chick. Chick, chick, chick. Famuklan is weaving the shuttle through the loom when news of the draft comes. Each family must provide one man to be a soldier in the army. Sparing her dear father the wretched life of a soldier, she disguises herself as a man and goes in his stead to war. With heavy armor and her hand-fitting sword, she fights wars. Her horse's hooves pound the earth. She cannot hear the voices of home. She is away long years and many battles, so long a time that her father and mother grow old and die. At the head of her army, giving chase and being chased, she suffers wounds. Blood drips red from the openings of her armor. Her army, chasing and being chased, passes her home village six times, back and forth past her home. But she cannot stop to place offerings on the graves. In terrible battle, General Muklan defeats an enemy, and the king proffers rewards. She asks to go home. The war be done. She takes her, her army to her home village and orders them to wait for her in the square. Indoors, she takes off man's armor. She bathes, dresses herself in pretty silks, and reddens her cheeks and lips. She upsweeps her long black hair and adorns it with flowers. Presenting herself to the army, she, she says, I was the general who led you. Now go home. By her voice, the men recognize their general, a beautiful woman. You were our general, a woman. Our general was a woman, a beautiful woman. A woman led us through the war. A woman has led us home. Famuklan disbands the army. Return home. Farewell, beholding and becoming yin, the feminine, come home from war. Chick, 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 chick. There is such a story in the West, too. After 20 years of traveling to the war, fighting the war, destroying the other city, and traveling home, Odysseus could not stop warring. He killed the men who had taken over his house. He killed a dozen women servants. He drafted his 20-year-old son Telemachus and his still capable father Laertes. Three generations went to war against every neighbor. But suddenly, a beautiful woman appears. She is Athena, the hope of soldiers. Now... Hold, she shouts. Break off this bitter skirmish. End your bloodshed, Ithacans, and make peace. Odysseus, master of landways and seaways, command yourself. Call off this battle now. 
at her words, the warriors on all sides lay their weapons down. Their hearts are glad, and together they vow peace. Now, hold. Well, four years ago, on um, March 8th of, um, of 2003, I and uh, the Code Pink women, all dressed in yin colors, we went to uh, Washington, D.C., and, um, and we uh, stood and sang and said our poetry in front of the White House and trying to um, prevent shock and awe. And um, it was much like the way Mike Wong uh, described the soldier, uh, the, the uh, police and the SWAT teams and the uh, paddy wagons and all of that, the horses, the uh, police on horses and motorcycles, they're all there. And uh, they... Um, and, and so there I was, and there's all these other women um, dressed as, as peacefully and as feminine as we could. And we had the faith of artists, which was that if we read our poems and did our dances and sang our songs, uh, we could uh, make the world more peaceful. And so I... Uh, I uh, did this uh, uh, Mulan coming home from war, and I talked about, and I did this um, Athena saying, now hold, and I said, now hold, and, um, and then they just arrested us and <laughs> took us away. And, and then the, um, and the bombing started, and the bombing started, um, I just, uh, I, I guess, to about... Let's see, that would be the, we were there on the 8th, and so I guess about nine, ten days later. And so, um, so I end uh, the fifth book of peace like this. The images of peace are ephemeral. The language of peace is subtle. The reasons for peace, the definitions of peace, the very idea of peace have to be invented and invented again. Children, everybody, here's what to do during war. In a time of destruction, create something. A poem, a parade, a friendship, a community, a place that is the commons, a school, a vow, a moral principle, one peaceful moment. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.